You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. If you would, open up your Bibles to the Book of Acts, Chapter 4. And we're going to take a look at the first half of Acts, Chapter 4 this morning. Father in heaven, I'm grateful. I'm grateful, Lord, for the people who have prayed for me this morning and for your goodness to us, Lord. You're a great God. And now, Lord, we want to give our attention to your word and ask that you'd speak to us um, and that you would have the, the presence of your spirit here among us, Lord. Not, not only, Lord, to speak through the words that I say, but to speak directly to the hearts of those who listen to you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 4, we're coming into a section that immediately follows upon this uh, time on the Temple Mount where Peter and John were used by God to heal a man who had been crippled for some 40 years. Every day that man sat out begging at the gate of the temple. And Peter and John, in a very dramatic way, came up, and we saw this a few weeks ago. They said, uh, we don't have any silver or gold to give you, but what we do have, we give you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. They pulled the man up in a dramatic way, and he was instantly healed. I mean, it was just a remarkable occurrence. And if that wasn't enough, then Peter used the crowd that was drawn to such a spectacular event. Because everybody knew who this guy was. They knew what he did. They knew what he was about. They used the crowd that was drawn to such a spectacular event. And he preached to them about Jesus. But that didn't last for very long. Because now, starting in chapter 4, we're going to see the beginning of opposition to what God is doing in the early church. Let's take a look here, verse 1. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they had laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So here in the midst of all these people rushing to hear what Peter says, the very eloquent and biblical uh, proclamation of who Jesus was and what he did for them, all of that was cut short. And the indication from the original language of the biblical text is that it was cut short very suddenly. That phrase came upon them in verse 1 as the idea that they stopped them very suddenly. It was as if these religious leaders and officials who sort of supervised what went on on the Temple Mount, they, they, they listened to Peter and John up to a point, but only up to a point. And there came the time when they said, stop, this can't go any further. We're going to stop you. And you notice that they sent a lot of people to stop them. The, 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 the priest, the captain, the guard, and the Sadducees all came upon them. And as verse 2 says, being greatly disturbed. The Sadducees would be greatly disturbed that Peter and John taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. You know why? Because we know something about the, the teachings, the doctrines of this ancient group called the Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in the existence of other supernatural things such as angelic beings and such. But one of the things they did not believe in was the resurrection of the dead. So to have Peter and John preaching publicly on the Temple Mount, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, this would be very upsetting to those people who were of the party of the Sadducees. 
I mean, you think about it in the whole picture. It's very interesting. These men were arrested in, in a legal sort of way. And what were they arrested? What were the charges? Well, they were arrested on suspicion of teaching dangerous ideas. Uh, we thankfully don't live in a culture where people are arrested for teaching ideas. P- people aren't arrested for their thoughts or, or, or what they teach in our culture. But in other parts of the world, it's not like that, is it? It certainly wasn't like that on the Temple Mount 2,000 years ago. You, you, there was no freedom of speech, so to speak. That they couldn't go back. They, they were strictly supervised. So first of all, they were arrested on the suspicion of teaching dangerous ideas. I suppose the second thing they were arrested on, the second charge, was that they healed a man who had been crippled his entire life. Well, I guess that's a charge to put against a person in court, isn't it? You're guilty of what? This poor man had been crippled his entire life, and now he's healed. Well, that should be a glorious thing, but apparently it raised enough of their ire to that these men were arrested And arrested very suddenly. Notice what it says there in verse 3. It says that they put them into custody until the next day. I just want you to think for a moment about what an intimidating experience this would be for Peter and John. There they are just full of the love and the power of Jesus. Just letting it rip out there on the Temple Mount, right? Preaching their hearts out. And there they are proclaiming that all of a sudden they're stopped. Suddenly it comes to an end. The, the, the captain of the guard would be sort of like the police force on the temple. And the Sadducees and, and the priests come upon. And they stop them very suddenly. And, and the greatly disturbed officials, no doubt, handled them roughly. It says there that they laid hands on them. And I want you to see something else. Acts chapter 4, verse 21 says something here. Just look at it real quickly. We'll get to this verse later this morning. Verse 21 says, So when they had further threatened them, Later in the story, they are threatened more. Well, you can't be further threatened unless you were also prior threatened. And I believe right here that when they were arrested there in the Temple Mount, that they they were speaking threats against these men who were bold enough to preach Jesus, who he was, what he did, and that he rose from the dead, that they were bold enough to preach that right there in the Temple Mount. And you can just imagine what, what those preach, what those threats would be against these men who preach that message. They would say things like this. If you keep preaching, we're going to arrest you and beat you. If you keep preaching, we're going to harm your family. Or how about this threat? Remember what we did to Jesus. Now that would be a threat, would it not? So you have this great scene of intimidation, right? The cops come and wrestle them away, right? Shut them up, threaten them. They're scurrying them off to wherever they're going to hold them into custody. And by all outward measure at this point, Christianity, that is the movement of the followers of Jesus, because I'll tell you something that we'll get to later on in the book of Acts, they weren't even called Christians at this point. Not even called Christians. I mean, we call them Christians because they were, but at this time the name Christian hadn't even stuck to the followers of Jesus yet. By the way, when we get to that point in the book of Acts where it talks about how the name Christian came about, that's fascinating, really, and what it means. But we'll get to that later. And so here, these these early followers of Jesus, they were a very weak movement at this early point. I mean, think about it. They were relatively few in numbers. They were very inexperienced in leadership. They were commanded by their great leader to not fight back. In other words, they were not militant. And then you can also see this, that they were opposed by institutions that had existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
This was a real example of the mighty, the powerful, coming against the relatively weak and the ineffective. And then when you really take a look at the text in a bigger way, you see just what these early apostles, these early followers of Jesus were up against. I mean, look at it right there in verses 1 through 4. It doesn't really seem fair. Verse 1, who do you have opposing the apostles? Verse 1, you have the priests and the Sadducees. Uh, uh, Verse uh, 5, you have the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. Uh, Verse 6, you have others from the family of the high priest. And then you have certain individuals mentioned. Verse 1, you have the captain of the temple. In verse 6, you have Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. When you count all those individuals and groups up, there's basically 11 entities opposing Peter and John, and it's Peter and John just against them. And you see what the whole point of this is too, right? The whole point of the religious leaders, of the captain of the guard and all that, it's to project power. It's to say this, we have the power. If you're going to preach on the Temple Mount, it's only because we allow you to preach. Because anytime we want, we can arrest you, we can carry you off to jail. And with that whole atmosphere behind it, they hustled Peter and John off to custody. But what's happening in the meantime? Did you see that in verse 4? It's really pretty glorious. It's strange that Luke would throw this in right there at verse 4, isn't it? Just, just as an aside, Luke says, Oh yeah, the number of the followers of Jesus is growing like crazy. Now it's up to 5,000 just men. 5,000 just men. I mean, when you account women and young people beyond that, just think how many followers of Jesus there were at this time. And you know what Luke is trying to tell us in verse 4 where he says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. He's showing you that all of this opposition against the work of God that came against the entrenched, powerful people, it didn't matter anything. God was still doing His work. It's almost as if God was saying with that dramatic statement in verse 4, Bring it on! Bring it on, you rulers of the people! Go ahead. You you think you're going to pound nails into the coffin of Christianity? You just try. I've been thinking about this lately. I spoke at some event yesterday and I thought about a lot in the message. How many times people are just trying to pound the nails into the coffin of Christianity? Oh, boo-hoo. You know, the work of God is about dead on the earth and it's not going to last another few generations and it's fading. This. I'm sorry. When I just take a look at history, I find it impossible to be pessimistic. I see that the work of God has overcome so many challenges in the world over the many centuries that the work of God has been here. Now, I see that in the first few centuries of Christianity, people were already pronouncing it dead. The Roman emperors were saying, I'm the one who stamped out Christianity. Excuse me? Mr. Roman Emperor, you're dead and gone. The work of God continues on just fine. Hardly anybody knows who your name is, Mr. Roman Emperor. When's the last time you talked about Diocletian, right? But the work of God goes on. And this is Luke's way of showing us how powerful this is and how true this is. Yes, there's opposition. Yes, it needs to be taken seriously. Yes, we need to deal with it as we should. But in the bottom line, don't ever lose hope. Don't don't ever lose your hope because, listen, God is adding to His church. God is continuing His work. The number of the men came to be about 5,000. All the power plays, all the threats, all the intimidation, they were ineffective. More people started following Jesus and not less. And so now, at verse 5, Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin. It says there, And it came to pass on the next day, 
that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? So, wow, this is pretty impressive, right? Again, you get the whole feeling of intimidation. They set these guys down in the midst of all these high and mighty men, all these leaders of of the Jewish faith at their time, and, and they solemnly question them, and they say, by what power or by what name have you done this? It was a whole scene of power and intimidation, all the more so when we understand that it was basically, not exactly, but basically this same group that sent Jesus to Pilate in order to be crucified. They wanted them to know, Peter and John, we've got the same power to do the same thing to you. And so they asked him this question very pointedly in verse 7. By what power or by what name have you done this? Now let me just make a little side point. When they say by what power or by what name, they're basically repeating themselves. You see, it has virtually the same idea. In that culture's thinking, the power resided in the name. Because the name represented the character of the person. And so they're really almost repeating themselves by saying, by what power or by what name have you done this? And I just want to pause just for a moment before I go on to verse 8 to notice something here. I don't think that this inquiry by the religious leaders of Judaism at this time was really uh, illegitimate. Didn't they have the right to know what was being taught on the Temple Mount? Wasn't that sort of a sacred responsibility of theirs? These people were the guardians of the Jewish faith. They were naturally concerned about what was being taught on their own temple mount. Now, how they did their investigation can be faulted because they did it in the whole environment of power and intimidation. And what they did with the results of their investigation can be faulted. But the fact that they were concerned to see who was teaching what on the temple mount, I think that's a legitimate form of inquiry. But here they say to Peter, they leave it at the end of verse 7, By what name, by what power have you done this? Explain yourself right now. And you can just imagine what Peter and John are thinking. Or maybe you can't. Are they thinking, oh man, our goose is cooked, to use a phrase, right? Oh, we are in such big trouble. We are dead men. What are we going to do? Maybe we should just remain. I'll take the Fifth Amendment. That's what I'll do. Maybe I'll just apologize. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. You're thinking all these things. No way. Do you know exactly what Peter said? Peter said, hot dog, when am I going to get to preach in front of these guys ever again? Right? Here they all think, I'm standing in front of all the religious leaders of Judaism. What an audience. And they're asking me, explain what power and what name did this miracle of healing the man? Peter said, well, I think I will tell you by what power and by what name. I mean, what a beautiful opportunity God gave him, right? In the midst of all these power plays, all this intimidation, Peter sees a glorious opportunity. And it's just like, i got to step up and deliver right now. And listen, he does. But please notice the key in verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them... I'll just stop right there before I can notice. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly at that moment, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit... Again, he was filled with this uh, supernatural boldness and the ability to speak the the gospel directly to the heart of the matter. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. You're saying, wait a minute. 
I remember a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 2, it said that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit then. He was. Well, then how is he filled with the Holy Spirit again here in Acts chapter 4? Because that's how the Holy Spirit works, right? It's a continual filling. Matter of fact, one of the most glorious passages speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit is found in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We call it the book of Ephesians, and it's in chapter 5, where Paul says this. Now, in our English translation, it reads like this, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. But, but if you look at the ancient Greek grammar, that original language that the New Testament was written in, the original Greek language gives a flavor much more like this. Be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what God wants for your life and my life. That our experience with the Holy Spirit wouldn't be marked by just a few amazing landmarks that happened in decades past, but it'd be an ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what I just want you to think about today. Listen, you may have been filled with the Holy Spirit before, and I hope you have. But whether you have or you haven't, you should be filled with the Spirit of God today. But I can't neglect one other aspect of this. When is Peter filled with the Spirit? When he's out there on the frontier and probably scared out of his wits, right? I mean, let's face it. A lot of times... God will fill us with his presence and with his power most pointedly when we're at the moment of our greatest need. And we spend our entire lives, it seems, avoiding those situations of need. Oh, Lord, I don't want to be put in a situation where I have to rely on you that greatly. Now, I don't know if you are in that kind of situation in the circumstances of your life right now. I don't know if you will be shortly or maybe in a longer period of time. But I'm just telling you, do not be afraid. Call out to God. Receive the filling that He would give you. And trust that He'll give you the boldness to do what you should do at that moment. But listen, if you want to know the thrill of having the Spirit of God fill you and use you, get out there on the frontiers. Get out there on the edges. Do something bold for God that you've never... Can I just say, just from Peter's example, I don't mean this exactly, but I think you'll understand what I mean. Get yourself in some trouble for Jesus. (laughs) Isn't that what Peter did, right? Man, he's in trouble. This is a big problem. But you see, when you get yourself in trouble for Jesus, and I really want to emphasize those two words, for Jesus... Then Jesus says, well, here's my servant. They're in trouble on my sake. I'll help them. I'll sustain them. I'll bless them. And that's exactly what happened with Peter. Let's start again here. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you and to all, all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit filled him with boldness? Because if he hadn't filled him with boldness at that moment, I imagine Peter just looking down at his sandals and saying, Oh, I don't know, I just pulled the guy up and he was healed. Uh, You know, something like that. 
but filled with boldness. And there he is, he's in trouble for Jesus' sake. Right there at that time, at that moment, filled with boldness. He speaks to that crowd of the high and mighty in a way that surprises us all. I mean, this is like Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms all over again, saying, here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. Peter says it boldly to these influential, powerful people right there in the midst. And he says, let me tell you a few things. First of all, I love it what he says in verse 9. If this, we de- if this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, but what exactly am I in trial here today? We did something good to a crippled man. I'm sorry, is that illegal now in Israel? Can you call this to my attention? Peter's logic was piercing. Why are we on trial for a good deed? It shows that Peter wasn't intimidated by this court. Even though humanly speaking, you should say he should have been intimidated. But he continues on in verse 10 with great boldness. He says, you want to know what name, what power? I'll tell you what it was. By the name of Jesus. He didn't stop there, right? Jesus was a fairly common name in the first century. They, they might have said, Jesus who? Okay, I'll tell you Jesus who. Jesus Christ. Do you know what the word Christ means? Please understand. It's not Jesus' last name. You, you wouldn't call him Mr. Christ. You know, that wasn't on his business card, so to speak. No, Christ means Messiah. Jesus, Messiah. He's your Messiah, religious rulers. He's the one that you say you're waiting for. He's the one that you say you have your trust in. Jesus, Messiah, and just so there's no misunderstanding, in case you think there might have been another Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Messiah of Nazareth, that despised town in the region of Galilee, that despised place has brought forth a glorious Messiah. And, and what did you do with them? Well, look at what it says right there in verse 10. Whom you crucified. I can hardly believe the boldness of Peter here. Who would us in this room would advise him to speak this way in front of this? But Peter, couldn't you be a little more diplomatic? No, he says this. Now, I need to put the whole picture in perspective, so we'll, we'll wait for that. But just understand, first of all, how bold he was. Whom you crucified, don't you love the, um, the tension here in verse 10? Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Your opinion of him, crucify him. God's opinion of him, raise him from the dead. You rejected him. God the Father didn't reject him. You put him on that cross so that he would be cursed, according to that Old Testament passage that says, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. You tried to curse him, God would have none of it. God accepted him and blessed him. No, 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 you rejected him. God accepted him. And then he says, when God raised him the dead, verse 10, By him this man stands before you whole. I'll tell you who healed this man, by what name, by power. It wasn't me, Peter said. It certainly wasn't John. I kind of like how it doesn't say John was quiet here. You know, just in the movie that runs, I have a creative mind, sometimes too creative with these things. I always try to make a movie in my head. Okay, if I'm making a movie about this, John is a lot more scared than Peter. I want to bring in kind of a human element, right? Peter's bold. John is a little nervous. You know, he's tugging at his toga or whatever it is, not a toga, his robe, whatever they're wearing. (laughs) He's a little nervous in this situation, right? Not Peter. And and John can't believe that. John's maybe elbowing Peter. Peter, 
You know, remember, I'm here with you. You want to go down in flames, one thing, you know. But that's just how I have it in my head. I can't, certainly can't say that, that was the case, and John will probably give me a tongue lashing in heaven for saying such a thing. But he goes on even deeper there in verse 11. He says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, I'll acknowledge that you men are the builders of Israel. You are the builders. But you know what you did? Your chief cornerstone came to you and you rejected him. Just as the scriptures said you would. Because at that point in verse 11, Peter was quoting from Psalm 118, which is a famous messianic psalm in Judaism. And he says, listen, just as the scriptures said, that cornerstone which came to you, you, you builders, you leaders in Israel, you rejected it. You rejected him, but God accepted him. And then he says very powerfully there in verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, he said, you want to know by what power? You want to know by what name? He says, I'll tell you the name. It's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It was a name that you rejected and sent to the cross, but God accepted him and raised him from the dead. And speaking of that name, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. My friends, that, that word right there is a very hard word for our contemporary culture to hear. We live in, a, in an age of great tolerance, of great pluralism. And can I say that for the most part, I like that. I do. I think it's a good thing. I, I think it's a good thing that witches are not burnt at the stake. Even though, listen, it never happened in the exaggerated numbers or circumstances that people think. You should do a little historical research on that. I'm, I'm happy that, that people, at least in our culture, aren't arrested for their ideas or imprisoned for their ideas. I'm happy in general that we live in a tolerant age. But, but tolerance does not mean everything is good. Tolerance does not mean everything is right. Even if something shouldn't be outlawed, it doesn't mean that it's right. And for us to be able to say what the Bible clearly teaches, I'll just read the words to you. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or you can try to dig away in the ancient Greek language from which these scriptures originally came to us and try to sort of explain it away and say it doesn't really say what it seems to say in the English. Friends, can I just say it says what it seems to say. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only way. That's hard for people to accept in our culture. And I understand how it's hard for people to accept. I understand if there's somebody right now this morning, you are offended by these very words. You are offended by the idea that, that Peter, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would say that there's only one way to be made right with God, and that's through who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. I understand if that offends you. And at this particular moment, I'm not even going to try to persuade you. I just want you to understand, this is what the Bible clearly teaches. You can't parse this away. You can't explain this away. And instinctively, man responds to this. And he says, listen, 
Isn't there some way that I can save myself? Oh, yeah, I respect Jesus as a great leader and a teacher, and he seemed to love the children and do a lot of good in this world. And the Sermon on the Mount, that's pretty powerful and all of that. But isn't there some way that I can save myself? Isn't Jesus just for those people who can't save themselves? And that's what some of you think here right now. Jesus is great, and a lot of people need him. But me, I can save myself. Friends, the answer to those questions is plainly, no, no. If you are going to be rescued, if you are going to be made right with God, Jesus is going to do it. You can't save yourself. And if somebody wishes to believe that everybody is rescued, or that there are many roads to heaven... Or that you can kind of take the best of all the faiths in the world and sort of put them in a blender and puree them into one. Fine, believe that. But believe so and bear the consequences. And please do not claim that this is the teaching of the Bible. I would almost put it this way if I could put it so boldly to you. If there are many roads to God then Jesus is not one of them. Because he said that there wasn't many roads to God. And if you think, well, listen, this is Peter. This isn't Jesus speaking. Can I quote to you some words from Jesus? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, that's Jesus himself speaking. So friends, these are very powerful words, and I I am so aware that this is so contrary to to the the thinking of our modern age. But, But what can I do? Can I stand before you and pretend that the Bible doesn't say what it clearly says? Can you do that? If it makes us popular with the culture, well, that's fine. If it makes us unpopular with the culture, then that's just what we have to bear. But we cannot deny that this is what the Bible clearly teaches. I'll just read it to you again. Verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now I want you to couple that very, and let's admit it, it's an exclusive statement, is it not? Let's couple that exclusive statement with what is said in verse 13. I love this. He says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, well, that blows my theory out right there, right? It says John was bold right there too, right? So I have to correct the movie in my head. It's fine to have a movie in your head, but it's got to square with what the Scriptures say, right? When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, John, okay, John, I take it back. And perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Well, first of all, they look at these guys and they go, wow, they're really bold. Nobody comes here and talks to us like that. Everybody's afraid to speak to us. These guys are bold. That's the first thing they say. And then they think about it a little more and they go, you know what? These guys are uneducated and untrained men. 
Now, in a sense, I think we should probably disagree with this opinion of the Jewish leaders judging Peter and John. Certainly, Peter and John were uneducated in one sense. And this was a sense. They, just like Jesus, had no formal rabbinic education according to the customs and the standards of that time. Yet, they were educated in two far more important ways than the theological and rabbinic schools of that day. The two more important ways that they were educated was, first of all, they knew the scriptures. Oh, they knew them. Look at Peter's preaching. Peter knew the scriptures. They knew the Bible. And then number two, you saw it at the end of verse 13. They had been with Jesus. I don't know how you can any call any man or any woman uneducated and untrained if they've been with Jesus. That's an education. That's a training right there. And the greater importance of those two things, of knowing the Bible and being with Jesus, the fact that those are more important than a formal education, that's been proven in the lives of God's servants again and again. It's been proven true in the lives of such servants of God as Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, each one of those great men of God never had any kind of formal theological education at all. And God used them. By the standards of the world, they were uneducated and untrained men. But I'll tell you, they knew their Bibles and they had been with Jesus. Now please, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not against formal theological education. It's helpful to remember that God has used many people who were greatly educated. Moses, Daniel, Paul, they were all biblical examples. And if you go to the pages of church history, you find men like Augustine and Martin Luther and even in our own age, a Billy Graham. Those are some historical examples. No, it's wrong to think that formal education disqualifies someone for effective service of God. That's just as wrong as thinking that it automatically qualifies someone for effective service. But what are the two essential components? The two essential components are that they know the scriptures and that they have been with Jesus. And because Peter and John had been with Jesus, they were bold. I mean, listen, when you've been in the courts of the high king of the universe, how does it intimidate you to stand in the courts of man? You've just come from the presence of Jesus. And I'd say one other thing that is interesting to me about this section here is it's interesting to note what the Jewish leaders did not do. There's not a word here in the text of the book of Acts that the Jewish leaders raised an objection to the resurrection of Jesus. Wouldn't have this been the appropriate time? Hey, you know, Peter, John, you guys keep saying that Jesus is risen from the dead. What are you talking about? We know that he's still in his tomb. Nobody said that. We know that his body was taken. Look, there his body is over there. We know that it was all just a sham. Let's tell you the story. Nobody ever tried to disprove the central tenant of their preaching. And that was simply the fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. If they had evidence to the contrary, raise it now and destroy the whole movement. But they couldn't because Jesus was risen from the dead. And they had realized, verse 13, 
Not only in the past tense, but in the present tense, they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, this is what I want you to do. Play around with your mind. I want you to connect verse 12 with verse 13. What's verse 12? Let's face it, we called it before. Verse 12 is pretty exclusive, right? No other name under heaven, nor is there salvation in any other. You couldn't put it any more strongly. Peter told that august assembly there in the the official chambers or whatever else of the the Jewish leadership. He said, listen, if you guys are going to be made right with God, it's going to be through Jesus and no other. He very boldly told them. Verse 12 was exclusive... But look at what verse 13 says. It says that they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, how would they realize that? What would it be about the demeanor, the attitude, the character of Peter and John at that moment? What would be about them that would show that they had been with Jesus? Let me ask you, would it be that they were really mad and really angry? You you see a very angry person. He goes, oh, man, I know they've been with Jesus. You see a person who's just, you know, the veins are bulging and they just fill with hatred. And you are, you horrible people. Oh, wow, he's been with Jesus. Do you say that? Friends, the only thing I can conclude is that the moment when Peter and John were speaking, not only did they have a boldness, the text tells us that very plainly, but friends, they had a radiant love that was shining from their face, right? Wouldn't you say that? Wouldn't you regard that as being the evidence that somebody had been with Jesus? Look at the love in this person. Look at how much love they have. You you can just feel it from them. And listen, this is what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that if we are going to preach an exclusive message, which the message of the New Testament is, if we're going to preach that there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, then we better preach it with the love of Jesus. In such a way that people would see that we had been with Jesus. They're not going to see that you've been with Jesus primarily through your anger. Through through your hatred. They'll see it by your love. Now sadly, I have to say, when I think of this whole scene, of this great scene of intimidation and power that they tried to work against Peter and John in this situation, when I think of this whole scene, I reflect upon the fact That's very sad to say that when Christians became strong and powerful in the ancient world and when Christianity became an institution, then too often Christians were the one arresting people and telling them to be quiet and threatening them with violence and sometimes carrying it out against them. Friends, I'll tell you something. That is not evidence that somebody has been with Jesus. And we need to show that to people. You preach the exclusive nature of Jesus and who he was. You tell people that there's no other name. But you do it with so much love, with so much compassion that people can tell that you have been with Jesus. Now verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. I mean, right there, there's Peter, John, and the guy who got healed. We don't know his name. They just call him the guy who got healed. There's the guy who got healed right there. And I love how Luke says this, standing with them, right? Because before, what couldn't he do? He couldn't stand. And I just imagine the guy bouncing up and down. Look, I can do this. I can do this. And they could say nothing against it. Verse 15. 
But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them, is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. I find this to be very disturbing. Do you see what they say in verse 16? We cannot deny it. All right, guys, we can't, we can't deny it. This man has been healed in the name of Jesus. We cannot deny that. But, verse 17, we don't want it to spread any further among the people. All right, we know they're right, but we got to keep a clamp on this. Friends, that's corruption. Why don't you let the light shine on this? If this is right, they should, the discussion they should have had among themselves was this. Guys, they're right. We should repent and recognize Jesus as our Messiah. They should have had that discussion, but they didn't. Just like the way that institutions become self-protecting and, and they're self-policing. They put the clamps down on it and they said, no, we know they're right. We know we're wrong, but let's keep it quiet and quiet as possible. And so they say, we're going to tell them no more preaching in the name of Jesus. Now, just from your own knowledge of Peter and John, how do you think that's going to work out when they ask him that? (laughs) Verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Isn't that brilliant? They come back to them. Now, you guys, I'm telling you. And there's Peter, John, bold. There's the guy who got healed, big smile on his face, jumping up and down. I'm telling you guys, no more preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, oh, really? Really now? Then you tell me, you tell me whether it's more important for us to obey God or obey you. That's kind of a trick question, isn't it? It's kind of a trick question because, you know, it's really when you stop beating your wife kind of question, you know. They put the two things in opposition there. You tell us. And they don't have any answer for it. But he says simply this in verse 20. We cannot but speak the things that we've seen and heard. It's the truth. We saw it. We heard it. We know who Jesus is. We know what he did. We saw him die on the cross. We saw him rise from the dead. We see him at work among us right now. This man is a testimony of it. We can't keep quiet about this. You can ask us to, but we can't. We cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. They had to talk about Jesus, right? And I admire the courage of Peter and John here, right? Would not I, perhaps you, I know I certainly would have been said, you know, cross my fingers behind my back and say, okay, and then leave there and do whatever you can. They leave and say, no, we just want you to know we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep doing this because it's more important to us to obey God rather than man. And if we have to take our lumps, we'll take our lumps. So verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way of punishing them because the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done, for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. They found no way of punishing them because of the people. 
Verse 21 tells us that they wanted to punish him. I think it's sad how these religious leaders were completely unmoved by an obvious miracle of God, right? There's an obvious miracle of God right in front of them. That doesn't move them. Do you know what does move them? Popular opinion. The voice of the crowd. Political support. That's what bothers them. So no, no, no. We're not going to punish them because of fear of God. Or we're going to, not going to refrain from punishing them because of fear of God. We're going to do it because we fear the people. That's just sad. But the people, verse 21, the people all glorified God for what had been done. You know, if you think back to where we started at the beginning of the chapter, it all looked pretty bad. Peter and John were on trial before the same court that had sent Jesus to Pilate for crucifixion. It was a scene full of intimidation and power and pressure. But when it was all over, what do we see? We see that 2,000 more people came to believe on Jesus. We see that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit all over again. We see that Peter got to preach Jesus to all the leaders of the Jewish community. We see that hostile examiners confirmed a a miraculous healing. Everybody agreed that the guy was healed. We see that the enemies of Jesus were confused. We see that Peter and John were bolder for Jesus than ever before. And we see that God was glorified. All of that came because of opposition that came against Peter and John. Now I can imagine... Peter and John, there they are preaching on the Temple Mount, and they see the, the, the men coming up to sort of arrest them. And maybe they thought for a moment, oh, please don't arrest us, please don't arrest us, please don't arrest us. We don't need that right now. But I tell you, God used it mightily, right? I tell you this, God will use opposition in your life as well. Here's just what you have to do. Make sure you're aligned with Jesus. Little principle for you. Jesus never loses. Never. You stick close with him, you'll come out on top. Oh, I'm not saying that you wanted to go through difficult things. This was a very difficult thing right there. But I'm telling you, you stick with Jesus, you will come out on top. And that's exactly what Peter and John did. That's what I want to do as well.